This is John Hall. Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm currently drinking a Capella Porter from Ecliptic Brewing, and I hope that something equally as delightful is in your glass. Niall Zacherly of Mad Fritz in California is my guest this week, and he's coming up in a moment. But first, I'm happy to tell you that this episode is produced by Beer Edge. Check out BeerEdge.com for articles, podcasts, and to subscribe to the newsletter written by myself and Andy Crouch. Also, be sure to follow Beer Edge on social media at The Beer Edge. And beer festivals have gone virtual this year. If you're looking to drink and support a good cause, check out the Denver Rare Beer Tasting 12, taking place on the weekend of September 25th through the 27th. It's hosted by Pints for Prostates, and the festival is a live online event with eight hours of content spread across three days, including panels on beer topics, meet and greets with the luminaries of the craft beer world, videos from breweries around the country, and virtual bottle shares. Check out pintsforprostates.org for more information. So there's a lot going on out west right now. Some of it good, like the hop harvest, and a lot of it bad, like the fires that are raging out of control. Napa Valley is often in the news when it comes to fires in California. And while it's known for uh, wine, there's also beer to be found. Niall Zacherly straddles both worlds. He's both a winemaker and a brewer, and is one of the more thoughtful members of the beer community that I've come across in recent years. He'll share his story in a minute, but what's enjoyable about his beers that I've found is that they live inside of specific styles, but never fully let that define them. I think that this is thanks in part to his approach. He brews small, he brews with local ingredients whenever possible, and he isn't afraid to let the beer follow its own direction. It's almost like a trust exercise between the beer and the brewer. He's been busy during COVID, and while the current batch of fires isn't an immediate threat, the smell of smoke is in the air, and it's a reminder that there's always a worry. And so that's where we start, with the worry that comes along with being in a place that could be impacted. Niall spoke to me from the brewery in California. Here's our conversation. Yeah, I mean, what's happened for us, because both our brewery, typically breweries are in town, I mean... There are folks, you know, like Ale Apothecary that are outside of town that, I mean, I would be, he, like, he would answer, Paul Arney would answer this question differently because he's up in the mountains. And, I mean, we were up there this summer um, and it was like, don't start a fire. Like, this is a hot box, you know, like, you know, it's everybody, everything around you could go. And um, it's like that in our surrounding areas here in Napa Valley, although in towns, um, not so much, although they have been doing these power shutoffs. So, for instance, our second week back to homeschooling, we um, we we had a uh, power like a rolling power outage for like two days. So our kids started their homeschooling on a small generator, a little Honda, you know, running our refrigerators and keeping the the router going and their computers plugged in and, you know, and then we're, we're running off to, you know, go to our wineries that we're still in this lockdown and can't drive certain roads to access, you know, certain parts of, of the valley due to, you know, um, safety concerns. Um, so, 
um, it's uh, it's been crazy. Um, it's it's uh, so yeah. I mean, what it is is it's a disruption of business. So every time we have these kind of events, it 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 sends a signal to people that want to come visit or want to taste because we're a destinational area or location um, to to not come. It just it just you know that flag just kind of keeps. Oh, I want to go to Napa Valley, but eh, you know, yeah, I don't know. There are fires, and God, they have you know. But yeah, we're seeing more and more of this, and in places that were just machines, you know, these wineries that just crank. Um, you know, they're slow, slow as can be. You know, kind of. I wouldn't say dead in the water, but certainly in contrast to what they used to be, dead in the water. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's been kind of an interesting uh, journey, uh, for sure. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I think as a business owner, you delve into these territories that you're really kind of uncertain. Um, but, you know, climactically right now, it's you've almost, you know, as soon as we had the power outage, it's kind of like, OK, roll out the generators, do this, do that, do this. You're really you know that this is not it's not the first time this is going to happen. It's yeah. going to happen again and again and again. And now when August hits, the winds start. And when the winds have converted from these gentle winds to now extreme winds, and we're in a drought year, all these things stack up into kind of a, a very much a kind of a dangerous predicament. And so, and that's, that, that's what happened. It just happened a lot quicker than we all thought. Uh, these lightning strikes hit, they started these random fires all over the place in very remote areas that are, you know, hard to get to and difficult to um, access. I mean, you can access them, but then it's rough terrain. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting because these are areas where we ride our mountain bikes and we go way in the back country of, of these parts of Napa Valley that are, you know, maybe legal or not legal and um, or there's some easements and some non-easements and you kind of go from Calistoga over to here and over there. And I mean, it's just, it's, it's very rocky, remote, desolate, kind of difficult terrain to fight and access. So yeah. when fires start up, you know, it's kind of like, okay, let's hope the wind direction works in our favor. And, you know, I think living in these small towns, you know, fires can start in towns, but yeah, on the whole, we're probably safer in town. So when when fire season is upon you, or when it's at least like on the horizon, do you start to think about how to modify the brewery, how to modify the business? Like, are there things that you know you can do during the rest of the year that maybe you're hesitant to do uh, just because things could change so quickly, or? is it important to sort of just keep on a schedule and sort of have a sense of normalcy? And if the world interrupts, then the world interrupts. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a good question because it, it delves right into the core of what Mad Fritz, how, how we operate as a brewery. We never have operated like a traditional <laughs> brewery uh, production and sales platform. I mean, I'd say we're probably more akin to a small boutique winery than we are, a, uh, a brewery, although we are brewing almost as much beer as we brewed last year. Um, not quite. I mean, I took a little bit of time off uh, for a family vacation and because we've 
uh, let go of several like part-time employees, um, that's put more of the onus on me to be 100% production, which yeah. is good. It's good. It's healthy. I like it. Um, it's more stress. Uh, but then, you know, I modified things. So, okay, well, if I'm going to work this much, I'm going to pay myself a little more and hopefully this will all kind of work out. Um, but I would say in general, you know, we'd evolved with our tap room uh, opening. Uh, I think that was in 18 to do a little bit more DTC that wasn't by appointment. Um, and prior to that, it was all by appointment. I mean, you couldn't, you can't go to a store. We don't off-premise our beer. So um, our beer is just too expensive to sit on a shelf. I mean, you're going to see a 12-pack a of some or a 6-pack or 4-pack of crazy hazies that you want, and uh, and you're going to grab that. You're going to see this expensive bottle of beer, and you're like, wow, I can grab two of these 4-packs for the cost of that one bottle that, hey, it looks good, but, you know, I don't know anything, you know, about that. And then it gets you know, older and it's sitting out, you know, it just, it's not the way to communicate what we're doing in an off-premise environment. I mean, we've, we've seen this with high-end wines too. You just, you can't convey the property, the family, the people that make, you know, these locally sourced products happen. Um, you can make commodity source beers and go after kind of a, an off-premise platform. And, and, I mean, I've thought of doing that. Like, we could certainly create another category, another brand, and start putting stuff out. But when you circle the wagon back over, you close the circle again. You say, "Well, what am I doing? Why would I? If I did that, then it would con it would conflict with what I'm doing now. Yeah. Like, what I'm doing now is reaching for the pinnacle of origin-specific brewing, authenticity of origin." If right. I make, but what 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 does yeah. that mean? What what does authenticity of origin mean? It means that the impact of the ingredients is paramount to the quality and flavor that you taste. Okay, I mean, br break that down for me because I that I've I've, yeah. I've I've had your beer. I've I've talked with you uh, about this, but I, I know the listeners haven't ha had the benefit of it. That sounds like it's a nice marketing uh, line. But there's mm -hmm. something deeper about that. Like, how did you arrive at that as your um, you know, thrust of the beers that you wanted to make? But also, I, 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 how do you also like humanize that a little bit? Well, humanizing it's easy because <laughs> um, it, it farming doesn't actually occur without a community of people, and that's the super you know. But what's crazy about it is that until you actually grow your own barley, malt it yourself, or work with these hop growers, or, you know, try and find a mill or a seed cleaner or a combine or plots that you can plant on, or, you know, creating your farming, you know, community that you can create a product with um, that reflects that very gestaltic statement I made, um, you realize that it is very much a human element um, that and, and we're imperfect, you know, by nature. Um, and, and that's the beauty of human and, and, and kind. Yeah. Um, and um, so I would say that these beers are, you know, I could definitely say like, OK, like some of these hop growers, sometimes the quality isn't where we want. But you build relationships 
and you begin to work on quality. And people that are like-minded and believe in the aspirations of create, creating local, locally grown and produced products will hang on. They'll continue to, to, to partner with you. And then you'll have people that will come and go. And that's, again, that's part of the human element. That's farming. It's challenging. And uh, people, you, and this is the kind of the great world too, or growing wine is that, you know, there's some people that have certain platforms for how they make their wines or beers in which they can just call up and go through a catalog and purchase whatever ex Munich they need or love a bond, uh, crystal or you know how many pounds of they want to fill their silo up with x protein level base malts and yeah you know you kind of recipe this into um i mean it, it's it's fine you know like we all love haagen vanilla ice cream but like what happens when you know that where all the cows were farming and what the season was like. And when you got that milk and you made that ice cream, you're like, oh yeah, this ice cream came from X farm. This milk came, this cream came, came from the Petaluma Gap from this property where they grow this sort of grass. And in this particular year, you know, such and such happened. And that's why it's got this really crazy flavor. So we decided to, you know, create this, you know, ice cream with this and that and this because it all wove together. We're seeing the same kind of thing when we grow our own barley here in Napa Valley or in Mendocino or in Sonoma, the flavors that come out of this barley, you know, it's not perfect. Our, our proteins are too high or um, things are happening in the kiln that may, we may like or not like. And this is a very touchy feeling. This isn't automated. This is very hands-on. So origin brewing in itself, in a nutshell, uh, was a way to define this kind of what I call authenticity of origin, that beers and products that we consume will reflect a place and a time and the people that help make that happen. And like I said, it's imperfect. You yeah. can't taste our beers and be like, oh, my God, it's the quintessential, you know, this style beer. And that to me is actually what's wrong with beer is that <laughs> when beer gets so run down a funnel or yeah. the dang, I mean, not to say that a GABF gold medal winner or whatever hits the bullseye. It's probably pretty damn close, but um, it, and it may not, you know, I've heard these arguments about the session beers being 5.5 that got the gold medal or whatever. <laughs> and, you know, you're kind of like, yeah, it's there. This is imperfect, you know, but when you kind of funnel these beers towards a bullseye and a, a stylization formula, you, you might as, you know, you might as well just be a commodity. You're a factory that's making a product. And, you know, you're, I mean, that's really not that hard. It's hard to make things consistently exactly the same, yeah. but you can pr get pretty damn close if you run your quality assurance and quality control tight enough. Right. And we all know this. I mean, there are breweries that have been doing it for decades uh, and um, and, you know, they evolve. Those recipes evolve. And I'd say that that's that's we are on that journey constantly. Like, how do we make a better beer? How do we take our process, what we do, what we source and make a better beer? And I would say that if anything, what's driving that are our farmers is where are the ingredients coming from? Who 
you know, what one hop grower is working out and now the other hop grower isn't. And our labels depict every ingredient and its origin um, and varietal or varieties. Yeah. And so that that kind of barrier um, defines us and defines the product. And that's that's really the statement when you're talking when I'm talking about origin beer and this authenticity of origin. When you look at the back label, you can say, oh, wow, this beer is from here, here and here. And the water's from here. And this brings up a lot of questions. You're kind of like, well, what's this mean? What's that mean? And what's this? Well, it may not mean anything to you, but it means a lot to us. And so we're going to present that. And maybe eventually, as you consume our beers, you'll learn about this journey. And I think that that's actually probably the biggest challenge is that we are so kind of geeked out on ingredients and their idiosyncrasies that um, we as in you know, the, it, the royal we of, of Mad Fritz. Yes, yeah. yes. I mean, Stefan, who's working with me pretty closely over the last few years, um, you know, you get indoctrinated into this process and you really start seeing these impacts of the ingredients because I can't make I can make all the decisions myself, but it's really nice having other palettes to bounce these ideas off of. OK, so what comes first, the idea for a beer or the ingredients that you get in? Um, definitely the, the idea is there. Um, hold on, I got a poor beer. Um, so, I mean, right now I'm drinking a pale lager. It's a Maybach that, um, or a Hellerbach, I guess you could call it a lot of different things. Okay. That evolved. It's a great example of your question. It's, we've always used the, uh, Colorado malting, uh, Pilsner malt that they have. Mm -hmm. And um, we originally started out with um, glacier hops, which are kind of a snappy, citrusy driven hop. I didn't want to go after, you know, internet, you know, German thoughts or Holler Tau because I was just like, well, you know, that's not local. Let's be as local as possible. Over time, we did Crystal, which we could get from Lake County. We modified it. And that, that was a really nice permutation to kind of take away some of the harshness of Glacier it was just a little too aggressive. I mean, this is, this beer was modeled after kind of an Uber, uh, uh, like imagine a Pilsner or Quell, but more Bach driven. So there's a lot of multi. Well, now you're speaking my language, but yeah. And, um, and so then it was like, okay, so we, we did the crystal phase and then the crystal, it was the last, harvest of crystal from that farmer in Lake County, which is 45 minutes from my house. And so we had to look somewhere else for the labels and for the beer. So we said, well, let's go to, let's find local domestic sauce. And so we found some in Idaho um, and it's a bigger grower um, and it's, it's good. Um, but we're going that I already know. I mean, it, it turned out nice, but we're going right back to crystal that's being grown now for us in Sonoma. And so we're building, you know, contracts and agreements with hop growers over in Sonoma County that are growing crystal and we'll be able to go back there. And crystal is a great substitute for some of these classic noble hops. Um, and it, it, it fills that void and you can be local um, and not purchase from some monster hop yard and some other state 
you know, thousands of miles away. And yeah. so I, I really think that it also creates, it's more expensive, but it also creates this connection to what is local. And, and so this beer, I think, as you've heard, it's, it's evolved at the base of it, the core of it's all the same. It's just the heart and soul of that base malt, how we brew it, you know, uh, um, it, it's not a step infusion. It's not a, do- a decoction. It's, it's a single step uh, infusion. So, but then it sits in barrel for one to two months. It's augered obviously at cool temperatures and typically make, made during the winter time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, it's also the idea. I mean, Post House came with, I knew we were going to have so many local hops that like we need a beer that allows us to do a single hop yard and a single hop IPA. Right. Like we need it. We need a label for that. Like, and we're going to stamp this with a stamp from these, you know, we've got a new uh, hop grower. They're called Blossom and Vine and they're just outside of Santa Rosa. Sorry, and so River. Blossom, like a, like a flower oh. blossom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. they grow. They've grown lavender and all kinds of other things, but they're now growing hops, and they have an acre or two, and they've got some unique varieties, but also some classics. And um, so, I mean, it's just one of those things. You have a new hop grower. They bring in some beautiful looking hops, you know, top grade hops, and you're like, okay, we're gonna do a single cascade, single farm beer, and you, that's when you taste the terroir. And when people are members, because again, going back to your previous question of, yeah. you know, how do we run this business? Is it, it's membership driven and it started that way. And we, you know, uh, cultivate that, um, uh, you know, that, that, that platform so that it'll gives us the freedom to create, um, affords us the, the ability to create and pay these local growers. Yeah. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons why our beers are so expensive. It's not like we're just making money hand over fist. We have high overhead and our ingredients cost a lot. So, I mean, we've literally created beers based on the kind of necessity of, wow, we're bringing in, a, you know, last year we brought in a, 1,100 pounds of wet hops, dried them and packed them. This year we're probably closer to like 800 um, and, uh, we just received a, a freezer today, a walk-in freezer that we're going to build over the weekend, um, so that we can have better storage. We have all kinds of freezers, but we're going to modify that, you know, process. We may end up getting a pelletizer to support the local hop growing community if we need to. And we'll see, you know, when we just, get just there, for but... your, for your use or to pelletize for others? Uh, to pelletize for others, um, Perhaps, you know, there's just really nothing in Northern California for hop growers that need a processor. And we can't do a lot. You know, yeah. we might be able to do a few thousand pounds. Um, it's not going to be huge, but it'll be something that just, you know, pay for the pelletizer and also just give an, ask, you know, an, an avenue for folks that are doing wet hop beers or maybe they want to come pick up the flowers that are dried and then or we can pelletize it later. You know, like we can kind of give you know, an option, but we really, we're not there yet. Yeah. We're, we're, we're taking steps that secure our, you know, resources and building out our platform. So, uh, I mean, this is that local beer growing local beer. It's truly, it takes time. I mean, we didn't start malting the barley we'd grown in 2014 and 15 until 2016 because we didn't have a maltster, but we had already grown the grain. Um, so our malting unit. So it took us some time to get all these pieces together. It took 
you know, years. Um, it, I mean, you can come in with a lot of money, I guess, and do all this and, you know, stamp, stamp the, the bottle. But, um, you know, for, for a husband and wife to just kind of start this thing up, um, it's taken time. So I, I, I'm curious because right now hop harvest is happening. Uh, it has been happening. It'll continue to happen for the next couple of weeks. Um, and you talked about getting you know some wet hops, some fresh hops in, uh, but then you're you're drying them yourself. You're not making an IPA that has you know this this fresh hop aroma to it. You're not taking uh, fresh off the bind hops and, and and throwing them into into the mash. Uh, we're not doing wet hop beers. Okay. But we are doing fresh hop beers. One of the problems with wet hop beers is there's just so much moisture in the hops. And then scheduling your beer schedule, your brewing schedule around the reception, harvest and reception of the hops. Yeah. So one of the things that's great about our kiln is it may not be able to do more than a couple hundred pounds of hops, but we can also dry 40, 60 20 pounds, 80 pounds. We can do three different varieties in the kiln at once. So you can spot pick your hop yard, bring it in and secure it. You know, it means that we can protect every variety and it can be picked at its optimum level, not just based on some brewery schedule for making a wet hop beer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can just imagine all those people's schedules trying to come together to make a wet hop beer. And then when you put the wet hops in there, there's so much water in there and there's some, you know, there's some unpredictable elements to it that you need to get really used to, uh, you know, dealing with. I mean, gravities are going to drop because you're adding water, you're adding water. And then you're, you're adding this kind of green vegetal, fresh thing, you know, it's, I mean, I don't know about you. Do you smoke, you know, your weed right off of the, <laughs> do you dry your weed or do you, what do you do before you smoke your weed? <laughs> you I'm, I'm still not, I'm still not cool enough to get a weed hookup, but yeah, that's fine. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm being sarcastic, <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's like, uh, I mean, I'm, but I mean, it's, it's a different deal. You know, it's, it takes a lot of hops, wet hops to make a wet hop IPA. And so it really, you have to know what you're doing. And frankly, I like the control to brew whenever I want with fresh hops that were, you know, just come right out of the freezer and, you know, from right over the hill. Napa Valley still has a very much, or it is still it is, and I think probably forever will be more wine centric than beer centric. And I want to talk about your wine career in, in, in just a moment, but are you treated as, is Mad Fritz treated as like an oddity in Napa Valley? Is it treated? Uh, what What's the reception that you usually get, either by locals um, or by 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 the tourists who who come through? I think it's it's a fun. Um, it's been actually really that part of my own personal career as a winemaker, and then creating Mad Fritz with Whitney um, has been a really fun um shift for my career personally because yeah there hasn't been any good beer in napa valley i mean there's been beer in napa valley but it's always been kind of like good like meh like no one really doing that anything that spectacular i mean you think of like what russian river has done since it started at uh i mean when i moved to the valley 
uh, Vinny had just started working as had having his little Russian River brewery at Corbell Winery yep. near um, Guerneville, you know, and you know, and and then he transitioned. And prior to that, obviously, he was down to Macula and and whatnot. But I mean, just that you know, you're you know, he really hoed a road for a, a very high level of craft um, in Sonoma County. And we just have never had that. Um, there's a high level of craft of wine being grown and produced uh, in Sonoma County. Um, Napa Valley has been kind of looking at its own belly button for a long time, and it's filled with Cabernet. And uh, <laughs> it, it just, you know, sometimes you just can't see, you know, the forest and the trees, the, you know, I guess the, the vine from the vineyard sort of analogy um it's too bad um frankly uh but you know in some ways i call it kind of the adult disneyland you know uh of alcoholic beverages you know we have some distilleries and whatnot but it's just it's not really like everything but um it's not like a las vegas you know it's it's about the wine right so the beer is is kind of a oh you know my wife dragged me out here and i just i like to drink beer and uh this is awesome you know, and so you get that a lot. And it's good to be a bit of a refuge for someone that needs a cleansing ale. And whether they get what we're doing or not, you know, you that's where you see that kind of interface um, in the tap room. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm answering the question. No, I but, think you are. You know. um, but you also have a job working in wine as well in the wine industry. Yes. And so my my role is, you know, a director of viticulture and winemaking at David Arthur Vineyards. And I've been there for 13 vintages. Prior to that, I was a winemaker at Barnett Vineyards. And then prior to that, at Chateau Montalena. Um, and then I made wine in internationally as well in Australia and in Bordeaux. And uh, my degree is in fermentation science. But what got yeah. me to UC Davis was brewing. So yeah, you were you, you started homebrewing with your dad. Yes, exactly. And I went off to college, a community college in Santa Cruz, and kept brewing. And I was a total I was geeked out on fermentation. I mean, I had uh, I was doing independent studies with my community college chemistry teacher, you know, trying to learn more. You know, it was just kind of hey, I have this idea. What do you think? And he's like, um, there's no one I've had in the last decade that's ever wanted to do an independent study. <laughs> you know, you know, it's just, I was pretty geeked out on it. Um, and that kind of got me to Davis, you know, by that, just being inspired and driven to learn um, more about the, the fermentation process. And I discovered wine at Davis and, and then I realized, well, why don't I do both? And so wine ended up being a much more fulfilling you know, career for me. Um, How so? At that time. Um, well, when I left Davis in 97, I brewed for Anderson Valley Brewing Company. I tried interviewing for wine jobs and they, I mean, I still know these, you know, winemakers today. They're like, no, you got to figure out whether you want to do wine or beer. You know, you got to pick one. And it's just like, well, all right, well, can I do both? Like, can't, isn't that like, what's wrong with doing both? And, you know, obviously I was young in my career, so I did need to choose something. And um, so it didn't work out so well with wine, but 
I got hired in Anderson Valley Brewing Company, where they're clearly like out in the middle of nowhere, desperate for, you know, some people to come. And yeah, they um, need warm bodies. Yeah, they need some warm bodies out there. And it's a beautiful place. I mean, I'm a country person. So but it's a small town. And when you're in your early 20s or mid 20s and (laughs) yeah, it's it's a little tough. Sure. Um, uh, But I what I learned after about six months of being at the brewery and designing their whole quality assurance, quality control program, and they're setting up their laboratory. And I was the third brewer and the, the, the bitch that cleaned everything up at the end of the day, you know, while everyone else was out back drinking 22 bombers and smoking joints, I was the one in the brew house, you know, running caustics and, you know, it was, it was fun. I mean, I learned a lot. It was like kind of one of those things where when you, you, you work hard and you learn it all like it's there's no there's no replacement for that i just feel like i can bust ass in the cellar even today i will i still have to um and it's 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 a joy you know like yeah there's times when you don't like it but there's you know you built up a skill set in those years and um and a knowledge base that carries with you and you you know, it's a wonderful thing. So, I mean, it was hard, but I, it was great. But what I realized was I felt so separated from what I was doing. We were just making the same beers over again and over again. And it was just a production schedule. And it was just, you know, you have to remember, this is craft beer in 97, 98, yeah. 99. I mean, I, it, it, it's a, in a different galaxy at this point. Yeah. Exactly. I mean... Yeah, we all, I mean, I've been studying beers since I've left, you know, Hawaii uh, and went to Santa Cruz. So 91, 92, I was in Santa Cruz and I was geeked out getting people to buy me, you know, Goozes and Lambics and, you know, the Littemans and the Samuel Smiths. And, um, you know, we drank all that stuff. You know, we got our hands on all those styles. But, you know, we were almost like you're like this obscure niche. No one drank that stuff. I mean, it was out there, but not like it is today. And um, I don't know, maybe that's not quite right. But it sure seemed like it based on the context of how beer has blown up. Um, So, uh, I mean, during that era, you know, it was almost like it was a little like I guess it was kind of more like 95. 96 i mean you had all those kind of like brew pub concept you know i don't yeah. know what the hell the names were <laughs> there were you know no i know what you're talking yeah harley or what you know there's just like everything under the sun these kind of franchise brew pub you know beer lineups that you've seen a gazillion times and you're like Bleh, you know um it's just another brew pub anyway I mean, heck, I'd go there over a lot of other restaurants. <laughs> well, sure. You, know, you, you were always so guaranteed today. to at least get a decent burger or so you hope. Yeah, and, um, and they, they'll probably have fresh beer, hopefully. Uh, even if you don't like the style, you'd be like, well, they made it here. That's cool. <laughs> but so you, um, you you jumped to wine, though, and then you found a way against the, I don't know, the, the, the prophecies or the proclamations, I guess, of the early folks who said you can either do one or the other. Um, you're doing both now. And I, I, I'm curious from the maker uh, that you are of how those two worlds coexist. Is there 
a lot of overlap? Do you have to turn a switch when you go from one place uh, uh, to the other? Um, do you know? Does the education that you pick up along the way uh, benefit one side and then benefit the other along the way? How do you how do you be both? Yeah, I think that's that's a good question. And as you were asking it, I, I, I mean, I am not. I can speak some French, but it's limited because I don't practice it much um, since I've uh, lived and worked in Bordeaux. But uh, my Spanish is workable, but it's not fluent. But I, it's definitely I use it in every day. Um, so the best analogy is that. I'm pretty damn fluent in winemaking because I have 24 years of doing it. Um, and then I'm pretty fluent in brew making, beer making, even before I started Mad Fritz, I, I, I knew the process. I didn't have to like figure out what I was going to do. I knew I like, once we understood the concept behind Mad Fritz and what and why and, and how we would create it. I mean, really it's the why um, is the critical, you know, element to Mad Fritz, um, which came from wine, which came from my inspirations of being a winemaker. Wine isn't about making, you know, a product and just putting it in a can. I mean, it is. I mean, there is commodity wines out there. But if you look at the, the kind of magnitude of price points that we see in just the luxury side of wine, I mean, once you get past about 30 or 40 dollars i mean you can still have a crappy 40 or 60 dollar bottle of wine i mean that's crazy i mean how many sink dumpers do you have of a 40 or 60 dollar bottle of beer i mean you might um but there aren't that many 40 or 60 dollar bottles of beer out there yeah um but in the wine world it's a lot of them a lot of them and and that's just i mean that's just the lay of the land i mean there's crappy products everywhere and it's up to the consumer to navigate their way through this stuff, which is, it's a, it's a big task, but I think there's a fluency that I've built up over time. And it's not that anyone else can't do it. Anyone can do it. It's just, you know, it's time under the belt. It's like working under different winemakers, getting a really grasp of your craft, good, strong grasp of your craft. And, you know, I'll be honest when I started Mad Fritz, I mean, the first beer wasn't, I mean, it still turned out, we released it, it was great, but you know, there's, you know, it takes a while to learn your, you know, custom, you know, <laughs> machine shop made brew house that you've used old wine equipment to make, uh, to make a good beer um, better. Um, so um, yeah, I mean, I wish I had a fancy push button, whatever, but then again, I also really love paddling in and mashing in and not making a lot of beer focusing even, even in on still yeah i mean you know if look if you take labor out of something like i mean it really i mean i remember i mean a good buddy of mine john prody he went to uc davis with me and he ended up at pyramid at the at the big pyramid plant in oakland uh Berkeley kind of crossroads there. And I remember visiting them in 97. Here I was up in Anderson Valley. And Anderson Valley was all like, we had valves to run the steam. It was all by feel, you know? And when you discharge in the 38 barrel mash ton, you did it with the rakes pushing out the grain and you're raking it out. And, you know, this happened, you know, whatever, a couple hours. 
you know, it was a good little workout. You kind of move from here to there and you, you're kind of moving. But, you know, pyramid. They, honest days work for an honest day's pay. Yeah. Oh, you sit at your desk. You're looking at your screens. You're clicking on your valves. You're making the pro- making sure that the PLC is operating properly. You know, God, if that PLC doesn't work this time or we run, you know, some server, you know, goes down or whatever. I mean, you're dealing with a whole nother level of, you know, layers to just making a fucking beer that it removes a physical element to the actual craft, which is that's, you know, there's the sights and sounds and smells, but there's the actual doing that is so satisfactory to making beer, like when you're there, that when you remove it and it becomes, I mean, again, you're just a glorified food manufacturing plant that has all this PLC equipment and you've just removed, I mean, a lot of nuance um, and decision making that can occur on the floor. Hey, I'm not. I'm not going to boil. I'm going to boil like ten more minutes, or you know, I'm going to let it sit a little longer. You know, this looks a little like that. I'm going to kind of do this. And there's, I think that's kind of part of the art of making beer. That if you are pushed as a producer producer to kind of systematically produce these consistent exacting things that it's really not an art at all it's not the craft it's just a product and you know i don't want to be a buzzkill but i i don't know it just and not you know there's lots of good beers out there that are made that way i mean don't get me wrong i just i think that there's a lot lost to nuance and you know maybe we just want a good beer and we don't want to think about it you know it, um, I've heard people say it's like you know it's like headphones you know it's a like headphone beer you know like put your headphones on and hang out and drink it you know but you know, a lot of people just want a, a good beer um, so you know I'm not going to take that away from anybody or say that our beers are better or not They're, it's still beer at the end of the day and you know it's either good and you like it or you don't you know and, and, and or you kind of like it or maybe you don't get it or whatever Um you know, I've heard that too. You know, after seven years, you kind of, you, you hear a lot of different opinions from people that get it and people that just don't get it. Um, but Mad Fritz wouldn't have existed without my wine experience. And, you know, we thought of why and how, really why we should make beer. Why should we exist as a brewery? Well, we should brew beer and show that ingredients matter and work with only craft monsters around the country just as you would if you were a coffee roaster. I mean, that's the other analogy I like to use is like, yeah. imagine you're a coffee roaster and you just use Brazilian coffee beans and you had <laughs> your Italian roast and you had your French roast and maybe you had your little gimmicky blends that you put together and, you know, whatever. I mean, you see, it's that's the brew pub model. You've seen it a gazillion times, the red ale, the bitter, the, the stout, the porter, the, you know, blah, blah, blah. And um, the Pilsner, that's not really a Pilsner because they use an ale yeast, you know. Um, and I, I mean, I, I guess, you know, if you're really into what you're doing, you're like, well, I got to get those Ethiopian beans from that such and such mountain. And then, uh, you know, I want the Kenyan because that's like this. And then the Costa Rican's got that blueberry note. And then uh, we're going to, oh, I got a bag of that and we're going to roast that and do this and, you know, and 
you know, that's where, that's where the nuance comes from. And, you know, the imperfections, you know, come too. Um, you're not always going to nail it, but uh, I can't tell you uh, how many beers I've made that I'm like, I'm, I'm happy with, but I'm not as happy as I'd, I'd like to be. You know what I mean? But that's always striving. I, I, I don't know anybody who is, no, I know. I actually, that's that's not true. I know a lot of people who think that what they made is as good as it can ever be, and that it is uh, a, a above and beyond, and a uh, a gift from the heavens to the uh, palates of the unwashed masses. And that's typically the stuff that I uh, I don't agree with that assessment. But I think the brewers who are continuously pushing or never quite fully satisfied uh, satisfied. Um, those are the ones where we're getting some really fun esoteric um, or even just, you know, works in progress that are fun to uh, go along the ride with. Um, and you even mentioned earlier, you know, there, there, there's some brewers that have a process dialed in and that, we, you know, we know what these beers are supposed to taste like, uh, but they've evolved over time. It, you know, they're not stale. They're not uh, uh, just stuck in a, in a time period. You know, they're, they're, they're beers that have uh, grown, um, you know, much like children uh, o- over time and sort of uh, evolved and become more interesting and kept up with the times, um, a- a- as it were. Um the the brewery name is a combination of your children. It's uh, Madeline and uh, uh, Frederick. Um, how how much of being a parent goes into going to work every day? You know, when when you have your kids' names hanging on the shingle outside, does that factor into being a beer maker? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, and I'm going to refer to some of your other podcasts that I've listened to, because I think this is something you're touching on a lot, and I think it's good. I think it's good fodder. Um, You know, it's carrying on the next generation um, uh, with uh, uh, Heater uh, Heater Allen. Yeah, I was Um, talking with Lisa about that, yeah. And uh, and then, of course... um, uh gosh um the name escapes me but the bigger uh brewery largest craft brewery oh uh, uh jennifer yingling yes who uh Excuse yeah when i when i talked to her she she did not uh give any sort of hint that they were going to enter into a joint venture with molson Coors, but the but they did that today and uh i guess uh yingling lager is going to be available in your neck of the woods uh, uh pretty soon so um, awesome. Yeah. Stock up now on all those uh, those green bottles, uh, identifiable by the eagle on the label. Cool, cool. Well, <laughs> but, but anyway, yeah, family and kids. Yeah, there was a, there were some tight lipped moments. I noticed that I think that you were you were pushing some buttons in that interview, which I, I loved to to hear. And, <laughs> and uh, I was I loved. It was just like, well, she clearly did her homework before she she's been spoken to. Oh, uh, yeah. By her attorney and her, you know, uh, there were uh, there were there were clearly defined talking points uh, in front of yeah. Jen Yangling and she was determined to stick to them. And, you know, sometimes uh, that's fine. And other times uh, it's, it's not the most interesting radio. But um, well, kudos to you for, you know, at least asking those questions and seeing if you can get, you know, get something out oh that flattery is just the bach talking but yeah no but but as far as like legacy and kids and um 
Well, I think that I, I think that actually both those questions you bring up this question in both those interviews is kind of uh, and 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 run some parallel storylines. Um, and I'd say that uh, you know we. Whitney's family, um, and even the family I work for and make wine. I mean, we're dealing with, you know, we're now in the second generation that is taking over. Um, but, you know, pushing children to do what you do is, you know, it's, it's cute and all, but it's not really not the way to be a parent, I yeah. think. I mean, it's maybe a little bit kind of egocentric to think like, what I'm doing so great that you're going to want to do it too. And because I'm so great or whatever, I don't, I don't know. Um, I mean, <laughs> well, you also have young kids, whereas, you know, I mean, yeah. Jennifer's older and, and, and Lisa is 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 an adult and had other careers as well. I mean, you have kids in, yeah. you know, primary school. Yeah, exactly. And and so, you know, they have other you know, you got to We're humans. We've got to experience stuff. And if, if you if you do experience other things and then you come back to this family business, then, and that's something you want, then great. I mean, heck, I mean, hell, I have no idea what's going to happen with Matt Fritz in the next five to 10 years. Sure. I have no idea. All I can say is that probably the best way to sum up our, you know, my thought on Mad Fritz as a business is if I can, brew and create these products and enjoy this ride and this journey um making fun beers that reflect a place and support farmers along the way and build a community of farmers continue to build farmers in our area that aren't just great farmers you know we've succeeded and especially if i can use some of that income to pay for my kids school and get Matt and Fritz, Maddie and Fritz through college, you know, yeah. uh, or at least into it, you know, like, dang, this education stuff is expensive as heck. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, is. uh, you know, we're looking down a barrel of gun of a gun trying to get them through. And so I, you know, if we can do it in, in a way that, we're enjoying life and challenged and fulfilled. I, I think it's all kind of part of the process. Um, I say it, uh, I mean, it, I just, you know, it's really hard to know what your, where your business will be given the, the context uh, of, our, of our environment right now, even with a pretty strong membership. You know, in a closed tap room, you can't taste indoors, you can't taste outdoors. I mean, what the hell can you do? Yeah. I mean, you just want to start breaking the law, you know. Um, but it, it just it makes you very frustrated uh, um, in general, um, not knowing. So you just keep doing it. And luckily, like I said, we have a strong membership and that's that's been the, the heart and soul that have kept you know, our creativity, you know, alive. And without that, we would be succumbing to a lot of different, you know, market forces. I mean, I mean, it, we don't make hazy juices. We don't adhere to styles that are trendy. I mean, that has nothing to do with what we do. Yeah. Like I, I could care less about what's the hot, like make a seltzer, like what? I'm going to make a bunch of carbonated water with alcohol in it, with flavors? Like, no way. 
Like we're a brewery. We're not a beverage company. Right. But you what know, about hard process? lemonade though? Would you do oh, hard, yeah, lemonade? hard lemonade? Let's see. We're going to have to only do that. So you, <laughs> you, you mentioned things. membership a few times. Um, space is limited and I guess people uh, need to uh, email you at just Niall at madfritz.com if they want to get on the waiting list. Is that right? Uh, yes, there. Um, you go to our website, madfritz.com. There is a kind of a waitlist sign up, and then we open it up for like a week. And then uh, if you get your, we're literally like a paper trail, old school. Excuse me. Um, uh, system here. We're not running a huge back end uh, platform. For better, for worse. Excuse me. Okay. And um, you know, so yeah, I mean, it's it's a one year ride, and we'll re renew you if you want. Um, there is a, availability um, domestic, like within uh, California for sure, super easy. And then out of California, um, there are, you know, some alternatives uh, that are out there. Um, we don't ship out of state. Um, other people do. Um, so we can um, get you in contact with them. So, uh, but yeah, we don't have a lot of space in the membership. Uh, we really, we're not, you know... <laughs> I can't tell you how many times you get people visiting. I mean, this has been happening for seven years where you get the person that comes in like, what's the plan? When are you going to sell out? Or what's the this? Or how are you going to do that? Or, you know, and I, you're just I don't know. I, based on the history of this show, I'm now expecting three weeks from you, uh, three weeks from now for you to announce uh, without telling me oh. on the show, uh, this huge new partnership that you've, uh, that you've gotten involved with, you know, as a, you know, as a family owned brewery. Yeah, I haven't decided whether it's Heineken or whether it's Anheuser Busch. Now put uh, your or... money in Coca Cola. That's uh, <laughs> oh, that, that, that's oh, where yeah, it is. <laughs> I don't know. I really want to be bought by like a candy company, and then I could do all the candy infused beers <laughs> I want to do. All right. Before this goes totally off the rails and while we leave people in suspense on how you would make your, your lemonade, your hard lemonade, uh, I will say thank you so much, Niall. It, it is always a pleasure talking with you, and uh, I, uh, um, I'm sorry that I'm not going to see you at the Big Beers Festival, which happens every January, and we've gotten to hang out the last couple of years, uh, you know, having some beers and being on panels and, and, and just sort of talking. And I'm sorry COVID is messing all of that up, but I'm looking forward to pints with you in person and to having you back on to tell us all about your your hard lemonade so thanks for thanks for taking the time yes thanks for having me and i, I i'll never forget uh that you needed a ride down to uh to uh to where, where do we go what was the oh, brewery oh um, we went to beer Beerstadt. Yeah, yeah you're like well yeah. i gotta go to Beerstadt, and i'm like well i i need to go there too um well, let's go. Yeah. Um, it's a wonderful way to, to meet you and um, and uh, really love the work you're doing. And uh, thanks for having Matt Fritz on. And um, yeah, keep the great spirit alive, man. And um, look forward to uh, seeing you soon. That's Niall Zacherly of Mad Fritz Beer in Napa Valley. You can find him online at madfritz.com. And he's a genuine pleasure to talk with, and I appreciate his time. And I'm appreciative of yours as well. Thanks for tuning in and for all the reviews that you've left about the show and the letters that you're sending in. Please keep it up. 
A reminder that this episode is produced by Beer Edge, a company I started with my pal Andy Crouch. Check out BeerEdge.com for articles, podcasts, and to subscribe to the newsletter written by myself and Andy. Also, be sure to follow Beer Edge on social media at The Beer Edge. And beer festivals have gone virtual this year. If you're looking to drink and uh, support a good cause, please check out the Denver Rare Beer Tasting 12, taking place the weekend of September 25th to the 27th. It's hosted by Pines for Prostates, and the festival is a live online event with eight hours of content spread across three days, including panels on beer topics, meet and greets with the luminaries of the craft beer world, videos from breweries around the country, and virtual bottle shares. Check out pintsforprostates.org for more information. I'll be moderating a few of the panels, and I hope to see you all virtually soon. Also, check out Steal This Beer and the BYO Nano podcast, and you should visit nanocon.beer to learn about that upcoming virtual conference that can help you start or build upon a small brewery. And please don't forget to go on to Apple Podcasts or wherever you download and leave a review of the show. If you have questions, suggestions, or guests you'd like to hear, you can email me at John Hall, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L, at beeredge.com, or reach out on Twitter at John underscore Hall. Nate Schweber, by the way, was on that road trip with Niall to Bierstadt uh, all those years ago, and he also does the music for the show. Jeff Quinn designed the logo, and he was not on that particular jaunt. My thanks to you for listening. I'm John Hall, and new episodes release every Wednesday, and that's when I'll be back again to drink beer and to think beer. <laughs>